0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a half an hour to spend exactly as you've wanted to all week, listening to Ashlyn Kelleher on the need for spontaneous social apps, finding an argument against billionaires with Maurice Gohan and discovering the stuff of which customers of the week are wrought. But we begin at that place where cuddly felt forms and deadly pathogens meet. When it comes to image management, viruses have not been having a stellar year of with the phylum's popularity at historically low levels with humanity, or at least most of humanity, because for artist Nikki Collier, viruses continue to provide a fascination and a subject matter, even if they have had a huge impact on her own life. Last year, Collier, who's originally from Bulgaria, began creating an exhibition, the Virus Exhibition, for Belfast University of Atypical, long before COVID-19 shot to fame. In Collier's work, microorganisms such as herpes, AIDS, hepatitis B, Ebola, plague and the wildly popular coronavirus are all rendered in bright quinic coloured felt, giving them an unexpectedly cute and cuddly air. Culturephile's Eleanor Flegg felt the allure from a distance.
1: Viruses taught me my biggest lesson in life. My daughter was... Diagnosed with uh, a very severe uh, genetical disorder at uh, the age of one week old. And uh, we prepared ourselves to live life of carers and taking care of her. But three weeks after my second daughter was born, my special needs girl was diagnosed with diabetes. And I just couldn't believe that she got another thing on top of uh, all the other... Um, Challenges that she had to get in life. Eventually we realized that she got diabetes as a result of a virus that she got, the vomiting and diarrhea bug. I was so fascinated with the virus that I started making it. mushroom on a tree trunk As protein It was coming from a place of beauty and a place of appreciation of life. Uh, so my first vomiting and diarrhea bug uh, would have taken me uh, more than a month to make because some of the wool was hand dyed, I went through a couple of iterations and once it was made it gave me peace because it gave me all this time to think are the viruses good or bad, are they beautiful or ugly What are we in relation to these half-organisms that can wipe our life uh, and change the life of a family forever, can change a person forever? So, yeah, it it gave me a lot of time to think about that. How do you go about engineering a virus in felt? Uh, The making process uh, is actually... um, Very interesting, you kind of reverse engineer the virus. I create first the nodes, they could be balls or they can be uh, small spiky attachments. So once I take those nodes, they are left on a side and then I create uh, the central body, which is hollow. And I usually stuff that hollow body with rubbish. It could be plastic. In certain cases um, this uh, summer uh, it, it was um, stuffed uh, with uh, gloves that we bought so many of and they turned out to be not actually um, something that uh, you can use uh, to protect yourself as effectively I then create the body in a technique that is called uh, using a resist. So you wrap the wool around the pattern that you have created uh, beforehand. And then I attach the notes. What's really interesting when you work in a particular type of medium that uh, has been your companion for for me, it has been a decade, um, is that... What your hand produces, in my case I work with uh, one hand, what what your hand produces reflects quite often how you feel on the day. Uh, When you work in material art, like uh, myself, it's very important to listen to the material. Uh, The wool will lead you, you just have to let that happen. I have nerve damage in my right hand uh, from birth. But uh, I have been brought up uh, to deny the disability as a disability. And uh, I was always able to do everything that uh, I want to do. Uh, Within my 40s, with the change of the narrative um, in the world and kind of making disabled people visible, accepted, and also just seeing uh, now that I have studio in Marley Park, everyone kind of goes, oh, you work with one hand. And I used, to, I used to get a bit defensive and say, no, I don't work with one hand. I work with my head. I do everything from my heart. But the more I think about it and the wiser I get, and the more the world changes, I think it's actually really okay to be working with one hand and accept it and celebrate it. Because through the years I have seen how it has helped me to solve problems and to question the status quo. So from this particular batch of the 12 viruses that I made. Uh, I particularly like the syncytia virus because uh, it's the one that uh, enables uh, our body to attach the fetus to the placenta and basically is part of the process of creating life. So, not all viruses are bad guys then. Well, you see, I think this is really wrong to think of them as good or as bad because it puts us again in the center of nature and we're not. Viruses are just part of nature, just like ourselves. Maybe from time to time they, they remind us that even a semi organism can wipe quite big portion of our arrogance and our, um, our disrespect for nature but they they don't have the privilege that we have to have developed a whole culture of what is good and bad they don't have the hope that we have to choose good or bad they just uh, they just do their job
0: Artist Nikki Collier there, ending that report from Eleanor Flegg. And if you'd like to see a roll call of Collier's viruses, follow us on Twitter right now, at Pod. The show at the University of Atypical is now hoping to open in December, virus permitting. But if you'd like to join an online felting workshop with Nikki Collier on Sunday 6th of December, check out universityofatypical.org, who'll send you a kit. Now, good election results, vaccine popping over the horizon. Things are looking up for planet Earth's humans. But let's not get carried away. And who better to halt that transportation than Maurice Gohan? She would like to draw your attention amid all the jubilation to an enduring global problem for which no remedy is yet available. Billionaires.
2: I hate billionaires. Don't get me wrong. I'm a capitalist through and through. I love to buy things. I have to consume every day. I can't even go on a walk unless my end destination is a shopper's supermarket. I always need to be spending. When the government said the Middle Isles and Lidl were non essential, I genuinely fainted. But billionaires, I don't agree with. You can't be an ethical billionaire. You can't make that much money without robbing other people of human rights. Someone has to give for you to get that much. When I got my first adult job at 20 in Chicago, I was earning 35K a year. I felt like a millionaire. All this money, baby, make it rain. Now, 10 years later, I'm still on the same salary. Don't get me wrong, I don't think I deserve any more. Sure, I give half my awake day to it. But that's a just cost for my barely-epped labour. But billionaires make like 300,000 a day. Sure, they're a lot smarter and more hard-working than me. But 3,000% more? No one is 3,000% more than anything. It doesn't check out. I read before that if Bill Gates drops $100, it would cost him more to stop and pick it up. That's not right. That's not innovation and entrepreneurship. That's legal robbery. Besides people who get rich on the stock market, every billionaire becomes one based on thousands of other people who work for little to give them so much. No billionaire actually makes the things they sell. They make other people do it. And they laugh about it on yachts at models young enough to be their daughters. Jeff Bezos is the biggest billionaire. His name is so important, Microsoft Word gives me a red squiggle when I don't capitalize his name. Jeff Bezos, capitalized, is the richest person in the world. And the only billionaire that doesn't even pretend to be sort of a good guy. He doesn't hide behind charity or human progression. He stands there like the devil incarnated and says, so what? This is who I am. And somehow we just respect that. We reward it. We open Amazon Prime accounts. You know, as millions lost their jobs, as most countries went into a recession, as nearly a million lost their lives, Jeff Bezos made $24 billion. During this terrible pandemic we're in, Jeff Bezos added more zeros to his name than he could ever spend. And what did he do with all this extra wealth? Absolutely nothing. But it trickles down, right? That's the biggest argument for billionaires. Their wealth trickles down and stimulates the economy. It massages the economy, easing out the knots until we're in a much better position than we were before the billionaire put his greasy paws on us. One Amazon training video included a testimonial from an employee who claimed she'd lost 20 pounds from all that walking around, posing it as a benefit. Elon Musk's company, Tesla, the stock skyrocketed in the past few months. At the same time, he made his employees take a 10% salary cut. And then he tweeted out that employees also get stock, so balanced out. Except no, it didn't. Employees have to stay for five years to get stock. And most don't. Either they leave because of unbearable work conditions or they're fired for not being good enough. Billionaires make money and it does not trickle down. They hoard it all like greedy little trolls. And we praise them for their business acumen. We're all closer to being homeless than we are to being a billionaire. So why do we defend and protect them? As much money as they have there's way more of us than them we can take them down we could say make being a billionaire legal once you get to 999 million the clock should pause and anything else you made is given back to the world that let you make it all or there's a second option just like there's only one share we only let there be one billionaire I'm talking Colosseum of Rome, gladiator style. They fight it out. One billionaire is left standing. And then Russell Crowe kills them.
0: Marie Scotton there on the very resistible rise of the billionaires. Even if you don't now spend an exhaustingly large portion of your day on video chats to colleagues, friends or even family you'll certainly spend more time than you'd like listening to people complaining about the monotonous grind of video conversation but those lovely folks in Silicon Valley are thinking about us and when I say thinking about us I mean designing new apps that see a business opportunity in offering an alternative to a diary full of Zoom meetings. Culture i file clicked on Ashling Kelleher via video chat to talk about a wave of what are being labelled spontaneous social apps that aim to add back some randomness to a lockdown world.
3: So the idea of the spontaneity, I think, is in response to directly the idea of work now taking place in the home, it being highly scheduled, and the same thing with uh, children potentially or, or over the course of the pandemic having to be at home and trying to keep track of everything just leads to this complete fatigue about the idea that all interactions with other human entities are scheduled and occur on on a very particular time base. I think over time people have become uh, fatigued with that and the idea that well we don't really have those kind of spontaneous conversations or that you kind of drift by somebody and hear them saying something interesting or if you're at a pub and you hear a couple beside you having an interesting chat, you might throw the odd word in there now and then to maybe get yourself into that conversation. So what we're seeing are these spontaneous, often audio, startups and apps and even companies that have had these on the boil, for example, maybe without any clear market and have now felt that that desire for the spontaneity, the idea of drifting into a conversation, chatting with some strangers and then drifting away has become something that has really kind of hit a market in this at home time for everybody starting in March and, and really taking a boost in April when people globally were at home is a very exclusive app called Clubhouse. And Clubhouse is a a spontaneous audio chat area where you can kind of move into rooms. There's some moderators who will specify whether this is going to be a very intimate conversation or this is two or three people talking and a few people listening, or 30 people who could all chat at the same time. And it's received tremendous buzz, partially because it's invite only, it's still in private beta. And trying to get into it and the whole fear of missing out that percolated over Twitter over the summer really kind of allowed this company, which has two employees, to create such tremendous buzz that they're valued at $100 million now.
0: Part of this we're saying is, is to do with the pandemic and, you know, a, a desire for a bit of spontaneous chat. But I suppose something like Clubhouse, where it is kind of very industry-orientated and it gets the VCs very excited, it kind of fits into the world where these people, a big part of their business is accidentally meeting people. And so they go to conference breakout sessions and speak on panels and have random encounters. And that's the bit that they're trying to technologize, as it were.
3: Of course, I mean, this is all about your social network but it also means who has the ability to pay to go to these conferences and who's going to speak to whom.
0: The other significant aspect is how important audio is in this there is this suggestion that people are just tired of looking at screens and why these uh, new wave of spontaneous chat apps seem to make an inroad is because they let you stop looking and a lot of them are audio-based and, and they really leverage the fact that you, your eyes are again your own and they're not fixed on a screen.
3: The, the apps answer a call that is evident not only in like enterprise situations, so for people who are working together um, and non, not co-located anymore, but also just solving the problem of people being at home, maybe in small confined groups and getting, you get tired of speaking to those folks, but at the same time, the schedule nature of a talk, or even the idea of just we're all sitting there looking at one another, it, it is, it can be a little bit overwhelming and just, it gets old pretty quickly. And so I think some of these apps, and there's a few that are coming out that are very specific audio solutions altogether. One of them is called Riff, which is actually coming out of the UK, and that's really trying to mimic and replicate the idea that say in the world of software development, if there's a small team and they're working on a problem, debugging something over the course of, you know, it might take typically four hours, you don't want to be sitting there staring at one another and your screen at the same time back and forth. So having the audio only chat which is just maybe on completely for four hours, but you can just choose to speak, it much more replicates the experience of being in an office where you're not all facing one another or you're not all sitting around one screen.
0: I mean, the thing that I've noticed about audio is that, that uh, you know, it seems like it's a hardware problem. You need a nice array of microphones if you're going to give something like the sensation that you're sitting with somebody in the room. You know, it takes a little more solving than uh, inventing a new app, it seems to me.
3: Yeah, I think because Zoom have been at this for, a long time if you think about how they've approached the audio I mean they have about 10 years of development and one of the most challenging things when you have multiple people and especially when it it scales up to about 50 people is how do you control turn taking how do you control the idea of not having people speaking over one another but the audio will cut out Pretty seamlessly, so it doesn't become this extremely annoying issue. So this is where you're seeing a new growth in some ways, in thinking about immersive uh, audio environments and the use of spatialized sounds, which gives additional cues to the person about perhaps, in still an audio-only environment that maybe the group you're with that you can drift away from them that maybe there's a more interesting conversation over to your left. And can you do that in a, in a way that is kind of socially appropriate? And this is something I experienced over the summer when in a conference that I sadly was supposed to take place in, in Barcelona that I was helping to organize. Um, we wanted to try and replicate the experience of going in, looking at posters of people's work. So you used Mozilla's Hubs uh, uh, browser interface, which allowed you just through the browser to kind of wander around and then start chatting and texting with people as you came close to their poster. It's not mimicking real life and there's still quite a lot of ways to go, but it was kind of like a fun endeavor that's a lot better than trying to get a lot of people on a call simultaneously. And I think this idea of virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality systems with this form of immersive audio are only going to grow even further. As you see like the Apple iPod buds, they are now going to be able to support spatialized sound. So giving this kind of a richness to the experience that may not have been there before. And so there is a company called High Fidelity that's been set up by uh, one of the guys, the co-founders of Second Life, And in this idea, that's precisely what they're trying to do is create these visual interfaces. And Lord help us, the one example they started out with is if there is a visual map of Burning Man and how all the camps are laid out, then you can kind of wander around and listen to different DJs and talk to different people. So that probably gives you a sense of, the target market for this
0: <laughs> um
3: app or like the spaced out people who are going to uh burning man or have the funds to go to burning man and would really like to throw their money at this so it's still early days yet um but potentially this is something that people will retreat to and, and feel like we don't need that oh, i don't have to see you to feel your presence with me
0: Ashlyn Kelleher of Virginia Tech there, speaking to me from her desk in rural Virginia. And finally this time on the Culture File Weekly, are you customer of the week material? Do staff in coffee shops light up when they see you enter? Would it be a good thing if they did? These are the kind of questions our correspondent Rob Long has to wrestle with every week to create what we've come to know as a martini shot.
4: This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. I used to live near a coffee place in Venice Beach that had a fun tradition of choosing someone from their long line of customers and dubbing that person customer of the week. They'd take your picture and they'd post it next to the register and you'd get free coffee for that week and you'd bask in the approval of the pierced young people behind the counter and pretend not to notice the other patrons noticing you and your celebrity in the modest way you carried yourself during your... Very special week. You didn't get to jump the queue, of course, but the people directly behind you and the people directly behind them, well, they noticed that you didn't have to pay. And that was pretty cool. I mean, it must have been pretty cool. For those who were honored with the title, some of us who went to that place day in and day out and never forgot a please or a thank you, who slipped a buck or two into the tip jar, who refrained from cell phone conversations when at the register as the somewhat angrily penned sign taped to the counter demanded, some of us, well, I'll just come right out and say it, me, me, I was never proclaimed customer of the week. I knew a customer of the week, though, which I must painfully admit is not the same thing. It is not the same thing at all. So one morning I walk into the store, I took my place in line, and as I gradually moved to the front, I saw my best friend's face on a photo stuck to the wall with customer of the week under it. That must be some mistake, I thought. Why is he customer of the week? What has he ever done? We come here together most of the time. They see us together. And yet they chose a favorite? Now, I'm using a kind of a ironic, chuckly, knowing tone here, or at least I'm trying to, to make it seem like it was just my persona that was crippled with a sudden and nasty jealousy. That it wasn't me, me. It was commentator me, personality me. But it wasn't. It was me. I'm not proud of it, but there you are. I saw his face looking smugly into the camera, enjoying his free coffee or whatever, and I... I was really mad. I'm not sure what it was specifically that was at the root of my jealousy. When my friend sauntered in a few minutes later, I tried to make a joke out of it. Hey, it's Mr. Customer of the Week. If only they knew about the bodies buried in your basement, huh? (laughs) It may not have been those exact words, but something equally lame. But I gave the game away when we sat down for a moment and I suddenly barked, I don't get it. Why you? He did the right thing, the friendly thing, which was to pretend that, of course, I couldn't actually be so childish as to envy him his customer of the week status, so he pretended that I was pretending to be truly furious, that it was all just a bit we were doing, a thing, a routine. (laughs) But it was not a thing. It was not a bit. What it was was the sudden realization that I am not affable. Yeah, I'm friendly. I mean, I have friends. I'm not rude. But most of the time, I scuttle around town doing errands or going about my business, and I don't really engage in an avuncular way with the world around me. I mean, I'm a customer, but I'll never be a customer of the week. My friend, though, classic customer of the week, friendly, affable, engaging. If I was working behind the counter and he came in every day, I'd make him customer of the week, and I'd, I'd ignore the other guy he comes in with, the guy who mutters and looks down and never quite seems to be there. I did a lot of thinking that week about who I am and what my expectations are for myself and the people around me. I thought a lot about what, to use a phrase I've heard on the way into yoga class, I was putting out there. And I made a small resolution to try to be more like a customer of the week in every way, which... Lasted about a week until my friend was bounced down to regular status and I forgot all about trying for affability and happily paid for my coffee like a plain old customer. And that's it for this week. Next week, we will
0: learn to say more. This is Rob Long with Martini Shop. Wherever you go, there you are, and that martini shot brings us to a nigh-on traditional end this time. We'll be back with more consumer validation next Saturday at 6.30pm, and indeed a little before that if you subscribe to the podcast feed via the Lyric site, or indeed Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any number of other folks only longing to help you get what you need. Bye now.